Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Wednesday Conversation. I'm Bethany Gilbert and I'm here with Pastor Bob Thune of Quorum Deo Church and Pastor Chris Emmelman of First City Church. Every Wednesday we sit down to talk about how the gospel of Jesus Christ connects to the questions and issues of everyday life. Today we're talking about how the kids are not all right. They're not, and we'll get to that in a minute. First, thanks to Ryan Meyer, Quorum Deo staff member, for our treats on today's podcast. How would you describe this, Chris? Well, we have some deer jerky, like links. Very good. And then we have little slices of, again, assuming deer jerky, but it has little chunks of cheese and jalapenos Jalapenos in there. Yeah, this is basically deer sausage. I suspect Ryan murdered this animal with his own hands and then Probably with a, a knife, not yeah, a gun. Yeah, I was going to say, like he he has from from beginning to end provided these snacks. It's not it's not a normal snack where someone goes to the store and buys the snack. He has a lot invested in this snack that we're eating today, and it is very good. It is very good. I don't typically go with. I like meat and cheese, but I don't typically like cheese in my meat. But this this was good, Ryan. This is a thing that a lot of sausage people do, where it's like the the sausage has some. I don't it looks like some jalapenos in there and some. It's like all packed into the sausage link. So. Thank you. And that is has nothing to do with what we're talking about today. We want to talk about how the kids are not all right. And specifically, uh, want to talk about uh, a study that came out at the end of February. So this is about 30 days old now from John Haidt. Uh, those of you who follow uh, these kinds of things know John Haidt. He's a social psychologist uh, at New York University, uh, has written a ton of best-selling books. He's very active in just a lot of the questions right now surrounding media, technology, uh, what's going on at universities. He wrote, he wrote a book with Greg Lukianoff called The Coddling of the American Mind back in 2015 that was asking why are people freaking out on university campuses and kids are fragile now and there's you know they can't seem to sustain points of view they disagree with. And so he, he just is very interested in a lot of these social things. And one of the things he's been tracking over the past couple of years is the rise in mental health issues among teenage girls. And a lot of people have been paying attention to that. We've talked about it a few times on this podcast of just what's going on uh, with social media and with sort of how it's affecting especially girls. John Height published uh, a Substack piece last month. The title is Social Media is a Major Cause of the mental illness epidemic in teen girls, here's the evidence. And he's essentially throwing down the gauntlet here and saying, the journalists who write about this and have been writing about it for the past five years tend to say things like, it seems like these are connected or maybe social media plays a role, but nobody seems confident to say social media is what's causing mental health issues among teenage girls. And John Haidt is saying, hey, in the last four years, we now have the evidence that we should just start saying that conclusively, this is the cause. And so this Substack piece is him laying out the reasons he thinks now the evidence is there. And um, it's fascinating because there's a million links in this book. <laughs> just like every other word is blue because he's linking to all these studies. He's basically doing the work of a good researcher. Now, you're going to see as we talk through this article uh, some of you who are like into social science or who are experts in this area or, or even in statistics, you'll be able to read this and get even more out of it than I did because he's talking about correlations and he's talking about R values. I mean, there's some statistical language in here. It's like geeks who work in this research world, you know, can eat this stuff up. I, as a lay reader, am just taking John Hyde's word for it, right? I'm not, I'm not digging down into all the links and going, well, let me see the R value of this study. 
But what's helpful for me when, when a social scientist does this, he's basically saying, let me take this whole body of work I've been immersed in for the last few years and let me like distill down for you what it's saying. And he is obviously writing this post, understanding that lots of other social scientists are going to read it. And so he's giving all the data to the people who know how to interpret the data. What we want to do with it is just talk to church members to say, hey, if you're a Christian, if you, if you have teen girls in your life you care about, if you're trying to raise some girls in the world, we got to attend to these data points because this is the world we're living in. And as we say in this podcast, we always want to talk about how the gospel applies to the questions and issues of everyday life. And one of the realities of everyday life in our world is the existence of social media and the effect it is having, especially on teenagers. So that's what we're talking about. I'll, I'll read a few stats from the John Haidt article. This is 18 pages printed out in front of me. It's a pretty long piece. Here, is the, here are the data points. 57% of teen girls now say they experience persistent sadness or hopelessness. And 30% have seriously considered suicide. That are, those stats are not good. That should get your attention if you have people in your life that you care about that are in this demographic. Okay, so he's just asking why? why? Like, and, and by the way, the numbers are way hard, higher for girls than boys. And so he's saying there's a gender gap here. And there's also, this seems prevalent among especially teenagers. And so he's saying, why is it this age group and why is it specifically girls who tend to be most affected by these things? And um, he wants to, first of all, he, he basically wants to ask, you know, what do we do with this? Why are, why are, why are these statistics the way they are? Um, what he wants to say is there's now a great deal of evidence that social media is a substantial cause, not just a tiny correlate of depression and anxiety, and therefore of behaviors related to depression and anxiety. Now, because he's a good social scientist, he wants to make two caveats. One is he's not saying this is the only cause. He thinks this is part of a broader story that's been happening since the 1990s. The way he describes it is that he, he talks about the transition from a play-based childhood to a phone-based childhood. Mm -hmm. So he says there's a lot of factors that contributed to that. It you know, includes parents having more anxiety about their kids. There's a lot of things socially, but he's just basically saying, you know, 30 years ago, you had a play-based childhood. Go down the street, play with the neighbors. Let me know. You might be home for dinner. Now we've moved to a lot more of a phone-based childhood where the learning how to like get along with people, how to take risks, how to become yourself by just playing with kids in the neighborhood is less and less a part of most kids' experience. And more and more, they're growing up on their phones. Second, he says, we have to pay attention not just to the individual effect, but to what he calls the network effect. He has a great analogy here that I found really helpful. He says, a lot of the studies on social media use treat it like sugar, where it's like, hey, if you eat, how much of this can you eat safely versus how much of it starts to affect your health? And he says, if you just ask, if I give Bethany a phone, how much time does Bethany have to spend on that phone before it becomes unhealthy for her? You're only learning about Bethany. And you're assuming that the effect is just individual. But he says, social media is different because it actually transforms life for everyone. Here's the example he gives. He says, hey, let's imagine you gave a girl an iPhone 5 back in 2014, which was the first phone that had a front-facing camera. And she was the only one in her class that had it, and she spent a lot of time on social media. Would that be bad for her? Yes. Would, anyone, would it be bad for anyone else? No, because it's like she's the only one affected by that behavior. 
but now put her in a classroom with a bunch of other people who also have phones and who also spend a bunch of time on social media. And now the effect is even greater because she's immersed in a network where now there's expectations of like, how come you didn't respond to my Snapchat and blah, blah, blah. And so th these things correlate to one another. And so as we pay attention to how social media is affecting us, we can't just look at, did I eat too much sugar? We have to look at what's the holistic effect on our whole society and on our networks of relationships by more and more technology affecting us. And this is the point that makes this feel so heavy because it almost, he's almost saying we're stuck. Yeah. Because unless there isn't an, an, a change at the societal level, the network level, then yeah, you can, you can try to help individual girls or individual people, but the, the pressure to do that, the challenges to do that, that the hill you have to overcome to do that is so great that I, sometimes people are just left going like, what, is there anything I really can do? And so that, that was really striking that part of it. He says social media transforms social life for everyone. Even for those who don't use social media, that's the problem. Yeah. Um, he, he, he says childhood has been rewired. It has become phone based and rates of anxiety and depression are soaring. Um, Here's the example he used. And I was like, I have a personal example of this to the point you just made, Chris, of just like the way that it reshapes all of our expectations. I have a 16-year-old daughter. She has a phone. It does not have any social media apps on it. She can text people and that's all. She can call people. And, you know, she complains about all my friends have social media. And I'm like, well, too bad. I'm not like their parents. I'm, I'm more, I care more about your long-term well-being. I don't actually say that. But, uh, but what, what I've learned is, so at work, when she has to trade shifts with people, you know, she needs to get off work or pick up a shift. I'm like, you know, we'll just ask if we can get off work. The way they all do that is on Snapchat. So there's no way she can trade shifts with people at work because she's not on that app. And that's just what the, it's what the students at her work have sort of decided de facto to use yeah. to communicate about the stuff. It's not, no one told them they had to do that, yeah. but they all have. And it's just the, it's just like the social reality. And so because she doesn't have it, she's like, texting her friend and saying, would you put my shift on Snapchat? You know, it's just like she has to figure out a workaround just to get a shift pickup at work. And that's what he's talking about. It's just there. It changes everyone's way of relating and interacting. And so even if you don't have it on your phone or if your kid doesn't have it on their phone, it is still affecting the world that they live in and changing the ways that we relate to each other and expect to relate to each other. And so he points out, um, this is uh, he calls it a collective action problem is what he's pointing out with you is he says each girl might be worse off quitting Instagram, even though all girls would be better off quitting Instagram. So like if all your friends are on Instagram and then you quit, then you're just out of the loop and you feel like you don't know what's going on in anybody's life. And they're all mad at you for not being on there. That's no fun for a teenager, but unless we all quit together, we don't get rid of that effect. Yeah. And so it is kind of a catch 22. Well, even in the example you gave, that there there's this, you've got to bend even, even when you're like, I don't want to do this. I won't, don't want to do this. The system is so structured for that, even inadvertently. I mean, they're, they're just trying to something very functional and practical. It's not, yeah. you know, deeper, you know, bad use of it, but it's just, that is just so much how we do it. You're, you're at this place where, unless you want to be a super big inconvenience, put your foot down and say, I don't care. It's, it's the structure just forces you to submit to it at some level. Yes. That just feels overwhelming. Well, and this feels like why some of the answer to this problem is going to have to involve government regulation or something high level, because it's just like, you, you can't, you're right. An individual parent kind of is helpless. 
unless there are some network-wide effects. And so it's why I'm interested in some of the legislation that's getting pushed forward, some of the congressional panels that are being put together, just to ask, like, how can we do something about the hold that technology companies have on us? It, it's going to have to get solved in multiple ways. That's unrelated to this article, though. What he's just saying is he's just talking about the effects on teen girls. So he's saying there's this network effect. You know, it's not just my individual use of my phone. It's the social environment that I'm in. And what he says is uh, he asked four questions in this article and basically says, you know, the questions we would ask as a researcher are, is there a correlation between social media use and bad mental health outcomes? He says, yes, there is that. Here's all the studies. Question two, does social media use at time one predict anything about mental health at time two? So it's a different kind of study. It's a longitudinal study where he's saying, if I use my social media over here, am I worse off down the road? And he says, yes, we've, we've shown that that's the case also. Uh, question three, do we have experiments that randomize and that show, you know, so he basically is doing all the, he's showing you four stages of research here that basically say, if we're trying to answer a research question, we use this scientific method in four different ways to sort of ask different questions. And the point of the article where he's going to end up is to say, all four of these questions, we've answered yes. And so that leaves zero question that this is a causative influence that one of the causes of social or of uh, mental illness issues in teenage girls is the use of social media. In fact, the way he, he concludes the articles with this sentence, social media is a major cause of the mental illness epidemic in teen girls, full stop. So that's where he, th he just wants to say the research is out there. It's proven. Um, this really is causing mental illness and, and mental health issues. And so then we have to ask as Christians, okay, so what do we do with that? With the girls in our lives and the kids in our churches, how, how do we try to work against this knowing that we're now living in an environment where we can definitively say that for a lot of the teenage girls around us, social media is going to be a net negative for their mental well-being. How should we relate to that? Can I add one more layer to this? And it's kind of a, a darker layer to this as we, before we kind of get into some of the- Thanks for adding thinking. more darkness, but sure, Chris. <laughs> so this came out of uh, doing, doing a seminar, theology seminar at First City related to what it means to be human. And we're kind of talking through the transgender issue, what's happening today. And if you look at kind of the connection between what we're talking about here with the, the growth in anxiety, specifically among teenage girls, and you look at what's happening within the culture related to transgender and, and those who are wanting, they're experiencing gender dysphoria and wanting to uh, go through medical transition, the, the highest number, the, the greatest explosion in number as far as those who are experiencing gender dysphoria is girls 11 to 17. And if you kind of stack those two things together, you have a population that is experiencing uh, anxiety. Gender dysphoria is a kind of anxiety. And, and if you read a uh, books like Irreversible Damage, Abigail Schreier has done good work in this. What's happening is any sort of anxiety that, that girls are experiencing is getting filtered through a gender paradigm. And so the, the explanation of gender dysphoria as the root of anxiety is, is kind of the, the diagnosis sort of that is popular right now in fashion. Yeah. And so there is very much a connection between what is happening here, the anxiety, and how that is feeding into kind of what's happening culturally among the transgender movement is you have a group of girls that are experiencing anxiety. This is being brought on by social media 
And then what happens is they're going to social media. What are they finding? They're finding these communities that explain, hey, your anxiety is probably related to gender dysphoria. They go to a doctor and a doctor's like, this is gender dysphoria. And what's scary is, is doctors aren't even running psychological exams. They're just immediately transitioning. And it's like a lot of these, um, these clinics, it, it's just this immediate push to transition. And so these two things are overlapping in some very scary ways. And who are the victims of all this? Young girls. Yeah. And so I, I think there's, there's ways in which th- that's not just about the trans- transgender thing. There's, there's more going on than just that. But I think as Christians, we need to be aware of how these two things are related and related in some very potent and scary ways. And social media as sort of the the gasoline yeah. that, that creates that fire. And so let's think about, let's try to be not just <laughs> looking at the problem, but talking about the solution, right? How does the gospel speak to this? And what resources do we as Christian uh, church members and parents need to be putting in place? Number one, uh, remember that as we talked about last week, like with, with Bavink, the last chapter, body and soul, like human beings are, are body and soul. And so what that means is we need to value embodied community for youth especially, right? So let's realize that one of the ways that we work against this trend in our culture is just to to create real embodied community for our kids. That means let your kids play with their friends from church. It means, you know, go to youth group or student ministry. It means value face-to-face interaction with students at church, talk with them in the hall, like just... The more we can live an embodied reality, the more we work against some of the ways that people go to social media because they're lonely or because they feel left out or because they don't know who to talk to. So the church needs to, first of all, be a, a thick embodied community. And, and we need to think probably more creatively about how do we go even further with that and, and create even better bonds among human beings. I mean, it, reading these articles has made me say like pretty much yes to anytime my daughter wants to go somewhere with her friends. I'm like, sweet, real human beings, go yes, do it. Yes, you know, yes, like yeah. I used to be real like, well, I don't know. Do we, you know, you've been out a lot this week or I don't, you got homework to, and now I'm like, it's cool. You want to hang out with a person? <laughs> go for it. You know, like yeah. that sounds great. Um, so I think we need to incentivize real face to face, uh, embodied community. Um, I do think there is a thing of, Christian parents just, you need to embrace avoiding social media as much as possible. And the story I just told about my own daughter is me saying that I realize it's hard. Like your, your kids are disadvantaged because you don't let them have social media. Your kids will be left out of social networks because they don't have social media. So there's a whole nother battle you have to fight of just like them feeling left out in a different way. But I think that's a fight worth having in light of the correlations here, meaning if 60% of teen girls experience persistent sadness, I think I'd rather work against the major factor that's creating that and not let that into my daughter's life. I'll deal with other kinds of sadness or loneliness. It's just, I think this to me is a place where Christians need to be pretty belligerent about, yeah, we're going to make some hard decisions for our kids. And what I see happening in Christian families is the social, the network reality sort of like pushes parents because it's just like, well, so-and-so has a phone and -and so-and-so has social media and I got to be on there to coordinate with my soccer team. And, you know, it's just like parents who don't have backbone can just like get pushed over by all that stuff. It's like, well, I mean, I guess I get, my kid needs a phone for school. John Haidt wants to remind you it's not phones, it's social media particularly. So this is even like, we're not even talking now about like technology. We're talking about specifically social media. 
So I'm saying, I think technology in itself has its own set of problems. But I think as Christians, we need to sort of collaborate together to say, let's have a little conspiracy that we're not letting our kids have social media until they're, you know, until they're 18 or whatever. And even then, I don't think it's great. Um, so those are a couple things. What, what comes to your mind? Well, to add to what you're saying, and, and I admit that what I'm about ready to say is going to kind of feel idealistic in some ways, but I think it is important that adding the, the, the formation piece here of as you are walking with your kids in this, that you are trying to build in them a vision of the good life, a, a sense of, hey, there's a reason why I want you to spend time in, with people face-to-face. There's a reason why I want you to be embodied in your relationships and, and try to explain, try to work to, to create the categories in their mind. Now, they're young. They're not going to gra- grab everything. The, the pressure of friendship and you know, kind of those things are going to loom large. And so I know this is going to be a battle, but you're, you're, you're sowing for the long term here. And so the hope is, is that as your kids grow and as they mature, that they're going to start to understand more and more of why you're doing this. And so that when they come to that place where they're going to have to start making decisions for themselves, that there is this sense of, no, yeah, embodied relationships matter. Being with people matters. I see why my parents made these decisions. I see why uh, it both biblically and just socially, it is good to, to spend time with people and, and off social media. And so you're, you're hoping that they, you're just so to that formation to where they're going to uh, align with that at the level of value. So, so it's not just a, you know, kind of here are the rules, but, but building into them uh, a sense of formation, a sense of valuing uh, relation, real embodied relationships. And so again, idealistic in some ways, that isn't going to remove the battle. It's not like your kids are going to get all of that or, you know, the, the influence of their friends is going to be strong. But I think it is important for parents to, to try to instill that in, par- in their kids. I have a thought here. I was thinking about this when I was driving a couple of days ago that Christians, when I was growing up, I mean, granted, I grew up in a way more fundamentalist moment. Okay. But there was like, we were okay being against certain things. Like we don't watch rated R movies. There's just a bunch of things we don't do. And it strikes me that like, because we have like corrected against fundamentalism, rarely do we have just things that we're like, yeah, we just don't do that because we're Christians. And I think probably we need some of that. Probably we need some of this of like, yeah, you know, we don't have social media. Why? Because we're Christians and we just, that's just, we're, you know, based on the social science and what we think is good for human beings, we just yeah. don't go there. Uh, might that be an overcorrection? I don't know. Maybe. But I just think it's hard to read this data and say, that wouldn't be good for our kids if we just had some real clear like lines that we drew in the sand and say, yep, on a few things here, we're just going to sort of be Neanderthals for the sake of protecting our kids. Because what's the comeback? Well, why would you do that? Well, <laughs> do you want your girl to be depressed? I mean, yeah. Tell me. Is, is, I mean, I'm looking at the data. You're looking at the data. What, why, why, would you, why would you not want this? Um, Bethany, you've been a teen girl. I know it was not in the age of social media. Is there any- like half in the age of okay, social media. Okay, half and half. Half and half. So what, like as you hear the evidence and as you think about this, and I know you work with students, so what, like, what do you have to add to the, to the conversation just in terms of like how you think about these things? The first thing that comes to mind is I've thought like, okay, I think more about how I model my social media use around my nieces yeah. who are 14 and 12. And I'm just like, if when I'm hanging out with them, I'm just on my phone, scrolling through Instagram, checking Facebook, looking at TikTok, whatever. Like, they're like, okay, she does it. It's okay if I do it. And so I wonder if this is maybe 
a good time for parents to think about how often they use their phones when their kids are in the room, what they're watching, what they're seeing, how they interact with social media, because your kids are like, they're taking that in. And that's just, that kind of terrifies me. I'm like, well, yeah, I, I want to get rid of everything um, <laughs> and basically burn it down. But <laughs> that's the first thing that, that comes to mind. But I think the other thing is, I just, I think it would be very hard to like, if all of your friends are on this platform, like I see it at student ministry with some of the kids that do have phones and are using them and the kids that don't like there is like, there's a separation there. And I feel the like, Oh, like mm -hmm. I don't, I don't necessarily have anything helpful to say to that, but it's definitely something that you have to like name and talk probably to your kids about you're going to feel this mm -hmm. and it's not going to be fun. Yeah. And I'm not trying to just like make you suffer, yeah. but it's for your good. <laughs> okay. Let me just for that, for the sake, since you said that, which I think is really good, Bethany, I want to read this thing that John Height says in this article that I, th I, th I found like really provocative because he's, he's talking about how in 2019, there was a study that came out in the UK and it basically showed like social media is about as harmful for you as like eating potatoes or something. So there's all these comparisons, like, you know, What's worse, social media or potato? People sort of like took that as like, see, it's not a big deal. After going deep into the statistics in ways that I don't understand, like our values of 0.20 or whatever, I'm just like, this is nerdy. Like this is Kevin Eastep level sociology. I'm not, I don't do that work, you know? So I'm going to let the people who do do that explain it to me. But here's John Hyde's conclusion. He says, in our paper, we compared the association of social media time with mental illness to other variables found in the same data set. In that same data set, mood disorders were more closely associated with social media usage than with marijuana use and binge drinking, though less closely associated with sleep deprivation. He, he says, I'm not saying that a day of social media use is worse for girls than a day of binge drinking. I'm just saying that if we're going to play the game of looking through lists of correlations, the proper comparison is not potatoes, it's marijuana and binge drinking. So again, he's being careful there to say, like, I'm not saying it's the same, but if you want to play the game of like, what is this like, blah, 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 he's saying it's more like marijuana than like potatoes. And the reason I think that's interesting in light of what you're saying, Bethany, is I think if we were talking about like, is alcohol good for your teenager? Is marijuana good for your teenager? Most parents would be like, nope, probably not. And we, we maybe need to have a little more moral courage when it comes to something that seems neutral. It's like, it's a phone, it's social media. It's not, you know, they're not inhaling it into their body. It's, you know, mm -hmm. but the, it's clear that the addictive patterns here follow the kinds of addictive patterns we see with substances. And so, I wonder if there's just, I guess what I was asking is like, you know, the pushback people are going to give is, well, this isn't a gospel issue. It's not a moral issue. It's like a, you know, it's like a gray area, right? The Bible doesn't say anything about social media. The Bible does, however, say in first Corinthians, right? All things are permissible for me. Not all things are beneficial. And so I just wonder if as parents, we need to free you to have some more moral courage to say, Hey, look, take seriously the addictive patterns here and the ways this can pull your daughter, especially into a whole world that can be really destructive and detrimental to her well-being. And so in light of that, 
feel free to be a little bit legalistic. <laughs> you know, feel free to have some boundaries and rules about how this is going to be approached, and don't feel like that's a you know a less than moral category to enter into because you wouldn't feel that way if we were talking about hey, all my friends are getting high. Should I do that with them? Probably not. You know, <laughs> probably be okay saying no. I know your friends are doing that, but you should you shouldn't do that. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Like that, that important connection of, are you a slave to this? Like yeah. things that, that, that aren't inherently sinful can become your master. And, and just the, this, and it's not yet, yeah, this, this don't go the, you know, fundy legalist route. Let's go like, I just, the care, concern, your formation, your wholeness, your health, emphasizing that piece of this, but I, I like the word you use moral courage. Like at the end of the day, we're going to need that because the network is so strong and it's going to feel so overwhelming and it's going to feel like the pressure is insurmountable. What do you do in those moments? You have to have a moral backbone and pray that our kids, they may not understand in the moment, they may not understand for years, but, but the hope is, is that sowing to that, that they're going to be shaped in wisdom that will bear fruit when they're older. Yes. And, and Bethany, you said it well a minute ago where you said that like, if everybody around me has this, I'm going to feel left out if I don't. Right. That's a reality for every, you remember being a teenager and how that, how you feel that of just like what group am I a part of and who, you know, who am I left out of? And you, you feel that really deeply. And so I just want to name this as like, this is not going to be an easy road for parents mm -hmm. or for churches. Like it's, you know, these are like, it's not like just set some boundaries around this and everything will go smoothly. It's, if you set boundaries around this, there's going to be other places of sadness and loneliness and confusion that you're going to have to walk through with students. So this is not, there's not a solution here. Yeah, that's a good, that's good. But there's a, f the, the question I'm asking is like, figure out what conversations are worth having and be willing to have them figure out what fights are worth having and be willing to have them and figure out what it means to walk with. I think we just basically like to your point, Chris, need to walk with students on this journey and helping impart wisdom and, and having some collaborators in that fight, you know, to your point, Bethany, uh, student ministry leaders and friends and aunts and uncles and you know, people that just like, all right, we're going to conspire to try to help these teenagers navigate this and get to a place of wholeness, you know, beyond the teenage years. And that's going to take a lot of influences and a lot of people pushing in the same direction. And if we go with the flow, the data is telling you where we're going to end up. We're going to end up with two thirds of our girls pretty unhappy and depressed. And I think we want to, I'd like to see that stat be different in the church. Not that people aren't going to struggle with those things or face those things, but I think we can certainly not allow social media to be the primary driver for why they're facing those things. And so let's try to, you know, conspire together for a different reality. Um, and again, I know we've talked about this before and we'll probably talk about it again. So, you know, um, the, there are no easy silver bullet answers here. But I, when I see data like this, I especially want to bring it to Christian parents and say, hey, here's what the data shows. And so let's not, pretend, let's not have our head in the sand and pretend like, well, my kids will be fine because they love Jesus. Like, no, they're not going to be fine because they love Jesus. This is a very powerful reality in our culture and a very powerful tool. And so we're going to have to be wise and creative in how we try to counterform students that we're walking with through these years. And if you're, if you're a parent, whether you have kids that are 16 or six, this is coming for you. So, you know, you got to prepare now. And, um, if you're, if you're in a church, like you just need to know, Hey, this is a way that you can help. Even as Bethany was saying, like just modeling different behavior with your own phone is a great starting point of saying, how are we going to 
help impart a different vision of life and of flourishing and of what leads to wisdom and, and help and, and health and maturity. You know, I try to I try to help my kids have a long view and to say like, I, I think it's Dusty that says this sometimes, you can think I'm mean now. I think when you're 25, you'll be happy that I had some of these boundaries. And if I had some bad ones, I'll repent then, you know, but it's just like, just let me be free to make some mistakes now to try to help you get through this season of your life. And then we'll sort it out later, you know, and I'm sure I will have done some things wrong, but hopefully we will have done some things right along the way. The goal of this podcast is to equip our own church for discipleship and mission. So if you're a Christian or a church leader in another context, we thank you for listening in. And we pray that this conversation might be helpful to you as you minister in your context. We love to hear from listeners. So if you have thoughts, questions, or future podcast topics, send an email to podcast at cdomaha.com. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you next Wednesday for another episode of the Wednesday Conversation.